Since first colonizing contact has occurred in Canada, the goal was always to build an all-white nation. So what lengths were they willing to go to to keep black people out of Canada? Hi, hello, what is up, and welcome or welcome back to Girl You Haven't Heard, the podcast where we discuss true crime and black Canadian history from a critical decolonial perspective, but above all else, without all the unnecessary propaganda that others love to include, but we hate to listen to. Let's get into this week's episode. So after the colonization process in Canada was fully underway, they realized that they had only focused on a very small part of everything that they could conquer. They focused primarily on the Ontario and Quebec area. They realized that they needed to branch out if they were to gain control and make more money and prevent the Americans from crossing over the imaginary border and taking over what they perceived to be theirs, when in reality they stole it from indigenous populations. While using enslaved African labor to build up the country. And I- oh. During the late 19th century and the early 20th century, Canadian officials did everything that they could to discourage Black people from coming to Canada. They did not want them at all. But they did everything to encourage white Americans from just hopping over that imaginary border that they didn't want them to cross prior. They initiated their American campaign to encourage white folks to come and start a new and miraculous life that would be so much better than the one that they had in America. Liza Minnelli, lies. This notion that Canada is so much better than America is not fact at all. It's rooted in age-old Canadian propaganda that was implemented to make Canada look more desirable to build up the colonization efforts. This notion is something that we still see perpetuated to this day, but because it was instilled in Canadian ideals, culture, and values for so long, the Canadian government no longer needs to push that narrative because now people will just straight up push it for them. And they will argue with people who say otherwise, despite the people who say otherwise being 100% right. But during this time period where they're trying to build up the country, the Interior Ministry, which is in charge of immigration, prioritized immigration through a very clear list. At the top were white British and American people, then white Northern and Central European people, then Jewish people, then Asian people, then Romani people, and Black people were at the bottom of the list. This list, arguably, to this day, still influences the way that Canadian immigration occurs. The idea that they wanted to create an all-white nation was definitely put forth by the Canadian government, but was 100% backed up by the Canadian people. The government was advertising free land, but at their will, they would make people pay $10 per acre of land per the Dominion's Land Policy or Dominion's Land Act which is a federal law that came into place on April 14th, 1872. It basically just opened up the floodgates for further colonization of the western part of the stolen land of Canada to occur. They were targeting Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba primarily, so the prairies. From 1870 to 1930, this law was in effect, and over 625,000 land patents were issued throughout this time frame. It's not clear how many of these patents were issued to black folks coming from America or those who were previously enslaved in Canada. Despite not wanting black people to come to Canada like at all throughout this time period, the Canadian government placed ads in every single newspaper in Oklahoma specifically. And so the ads were published in black newspapers as well. The Canadian government had contracted out a company to manage the distribution of the ads, so it's very likely they thought that the company would be just as racist and prejudicial as they were, and they would have been mindful and considerate enough to not place ads and information where Black people could access it. 
but obviously that didn't happen. The urgency in which the Canadian government said that they wanted people might have caused the agency who was in charge of distribution to overlook that black folks were kind of supposed to be skipped or they just really didn't care that much. The number of black folks who left America and came to Canada from 1905 to 1912 is well over 2000, but the exact number is not known because they didn't want them here. So they were not trying to keep up accurate information or accurate records about them literally at all. Majority of the folks leaving America were from the Oklahoma area. They were freed slaves and descendants of former slaves who were looking for a place to relocate after Oklahoma officially became an American state. It was previously two separate territories, Oklahoma and Indian country. But after the merger, the rights and freedoms that many had while they were under indigenous law and indigenous governance were completely removed. This allowed black people to be persecuted and hunted with intensity. After slavery was abolished in America in 1865, many of the states and the people in general just were not fond of it. They wanted it back. It was so desperately a part of their culture. They believed, and many still believe to this day, which is just untrue, that white people are superior and black people needed to be kept in line. So they were inferior. Since nothing was done to address this formally, the racism and violence just continued after enslavement ended. Since these states and these states people were unable to legally support slavery anymore, they just did everything else legally and illegally to ostracize, demonize, and brutalize black people. Oklahoma officially joined the United States in 1907. As a result, they were able to pass whatever laws that they wanted while continuing to trample on the rights of black folks, rights that black folks were supposed to be given the minute that Oklahoma became an official state. Most of their discriminatory laws were legally outlining segregation. They also blocked black Americans from the right to vote, and they tried to prevent them from holding office or being a politician. Laws were not created to legalize lynching or murderings of black people because that would have prevented them from being able to officially join the United States if they outright had a law that said that, but it doesn't mean that they did anything to stop it, and it doesn't mean that they weren't encouraging it behind the scenes. They would often turn the other way when these murders would happen, and officials would often participate, they would be there, or they would encourage others to carry them out on behalf of the people. If no one is going to stand in your way and no one is going to prevent you from acting on your racism, then why wouldn't you do it when just a few short years before, you could do it? Oklahoman mob lynchings were carried out by white supremacists and were extremely common. The local government was doing what they could to cover these things up, so the exact number of folks who were targeted in this time period will never be known. A case that was thought and did in fact push a lot of black Oklahomans to flee to other states or even to Canada was the public lynching of Laura Nelson and her son, L.D. Nelson. Laura Nelson was born in 1878 and she and her husband, Oscar or Austin, it's not really clear from the records what his name actually was, but they welcomed a son, LD, and on some records his name is JD, but most consistently on the official records it's LD. So LD was born in 1897 and in 1909 the family welcomed a daughter named Carrie. The family of four lived in Okemo, which is in Oxfugi County, Oklahoma, on May 2nd, 1911. Police Sheriff George Loney and three others made their way to the Nelsons' home. They said that they were on their way to investigate the theft of a cow, that the family was accused of butchering it. Now, it's important to keep in mind the racial dynamics and the power play at hand in this situation. A group of white men, of whom one of the men is of ultimate authority, strolling up to a black family's house, accusing them of theft in a time where white people were getting away with accusing black people for literally looking at them wrong and they would be sentenced to death. 
The actual events of what happened next were unclear at this point, but the police and the white men's account of what happened was that George was searching the cabin, and then LD just walked up, shot him in the leg, and then George bled to death. The whole family was arrested as a result. LD was arrested and charged with murder. Laura was accused of grabbing the gun before LD, so she was also charged with murder. And she was forced to take her two-year-old daughter, Carrie, to jail with her. Laura's husband was arrested and pled guilty to larceny and was sent away to the Oklahoma State Prison in McAllister. How long he was sentenced to is unknown. He submitted full written statements to the courts, and he took complete responsibility for everything that he and his family were accused of. He did this to try and prevent harm from coming to his family further while he was sent away. There's a sick and twisted irony to this situation that is not lost on me, that his life was saved because he pled guilty and was sent away, when it's unclear if he was even guilty of what they had accused him of. L.D. Nelson was held in Okemos County Jail, where Laura and Carrie were held in a courthouse awaiting trial, so they weren't all together. At the preliminary hearing for Laura and L.D., there was widespread doubt that they had enough evidence to convict. It raised questions if they had even done what they were being accused of. Before the trial actually went forward, the newspapers picked up the case and ran with it. Of course, those publishers were extremely white and extremely racist, so they did what they could to make all parties involved seem as guilty as possible. They just demonized everybody. They misreported their ages and appearances to make them seem more villainous. Laura was described as a woman of very small stature, very black, 35 years old, and vicious. So they're using colorism as a part in this case as well. LD was described as slender, tall, yellow, ignorant, and raged. Y'all make me sick. Y'all make me sick. On May 24th of 1911, Laura, Carrie, and LD were kidnapped from their respective jail cells by a mob of white men. The size of the mob is unclear. It could have been anywhere from 12 to 40 men. They were put into wagons and they traveled six miles outside of the city where they then entered a black part of town. After they arrived, both of them were gagged using toe sacks. 28-year-old Laura was viciously raped by men in the mob. How many and for how long is not known. She was then hung using a noose made of hemp. Then, 20 feet away from her, 12-year-old LD was also hung, and they ripped his clothes and pantsed him, exposing his lower region for the whole world to see while he was dying. Laura and LD's bodies were hung from a bridge over the North Canadian River. Now, this was done deliberately right beside the Black part of town. This was very clearly and intentionally done to send a message to the Black community. Stay in your place and do whatever we say, otherwise this will also be your fate. What happened to two-year-old Carrie is unknown, as there are mixed reports. Some say that she was drowned in the river by the mob, and others say that she was abandoned at the scene where a black family later came along and raised her as their own. The morning after their lynching, the body still remained hanging over the bridge. Hundreds of white folks gathered to admire the work of their counterparts. They also took images of the lynchings, which were made into postcards and souvenirs which were available for sale. Many even paid photographers at the scene to take pictures of them posing with the brutalized bodies. This same day, a newspaper called the Okama Ledger said that while the general sentiment is adverse to the method, it is generally thought that the Negroes got what would have been due to them. Basically saying that they got what they deserved so the public shouldn't be upset. 
Only after they were lynched, the truth came out. LD had shot the sheriff because the sheriff wasn't searching the home. He had pulled up and was about to shoot his father for absolutely no reason. LD had done it in an act to save his father's life. No one really cared about the Nelsons. To them, it was as simple as a couple less black people to worry about, so no one was too upset by it, nor should anyone else be upset by it. No one was formally charged with their deaths, even though everyone knew what happened, they knew who was behind it, and they knew who was responsible. The judge for the Okama district did put together a grand jury to investigate the circumstances surrounding the Nelson's deaths, but this ended up being fruitless as the killers were never formally identified. But it was thought that this was only done to appease the part of the public that was outraged, the very small part. The judge presiding over the case instructed the all-white jury to keep in mind that as members of a superior race and greater intelligence, it was their job to protect this weaker race. What did he say? Between 1888 and 1968, at least 3,500 black people were lynched in America, with at least 73% of those murders happening in southern states. I very much believe that the number of people who were actually targeted is much higher. Lynchings like this and other acts of more overt or even subtle violence is what pushed a lot of black folks in America to figure out how they could flee and where they could flee to, and they saw Canada as an option. The Canadian government was determined to shut that down and make sure that the black Oklahomans remained where they were definitely going to be targeted. The Immigration Act of 1910 gave the Canadian government basically complete power, more power than they had ever had to control, micromanage, and dictate who could enter the country and who they could deport. This gave the government the ability to make rules which banned immigrants belonging to any race which were deemed unsuited to the requirements or climate of Canada. What the hell is even that? A part of this act straight up says, the governor and council may by proclamation or order, whenever he deems it necessary, prohibit for a stated period or permanently the landing in Canada or the landing at any specified port of entry in Canada, immigrants belonging to any race deemed unsuited to the climate or requirements of Canada or of immigrants of any specified class, occupation, or character. The Immigration Act remained more or less the same until about 1952, in which a new Immigration Act was passed for the first time in 42 years, but it was very much still discriminatory when it came to race, ethnicity, and or occupation. In 1911, the Liberal Party of Canada was in power and they were led by Wilfrid Laurier. The Minister of the Interior was Frank Oliver, who was also a member of Parliament for Edmonton. Frank was a racist menace, to put it simply. And he recommended that an order in council be created to ban any immigrant belonging to the Negro race. So basically, no black people anywhere. Ooh, I do not like this guy. He wanted this law to be passed specifically because he saw that a black family had recently arrived in his area of Edmonton. He was completely aggravated by their presence. And he wanted to know who had let them in and how they had passed the medical inspections at the border. He got mad at the agents who let them in. He actually like, went and found them and like got into a tussle with them about it. On January 5th, 1911, he sent a letter to border agents who had let black people in stating that they were to take action and figure out ways to deport any black people who had entered. They told them to call the city health officers if they didn't think these people met the physical qualifications, which obviously they did meet the qualifications because they were let in, but he wanted them to find a reason. And so he basically told them like, just call this number, let them know where they're at, and just tell them that they don't meet the qualifications and they'll be out of here. Kiss 
On the 14th of March in 1911, the Secretary of the Department of the Interior wrote to the Deputy Minister of the Department saying that if we are to prevent a large influx of these people during the next six months, some steps will have to be taken at once. On April 3rd, 1911, William Thorburn, the Conservative member for the Ontario riding of Lanark North, asked the Minister of the Interior whether they were prepared to stop more Black people from coming and to preserve for the Sons of Canada the lands they proposed to give to the niggers. So basically just saying that in order to keep things good for the white people of Canada, they need to stop letting Black people in and stop trying to give Black people what white people rightfully deserve. Meanwhile, the white people didn't deserve shit because they had stolen it. Disgusting. The opinions of Musty Frank and his Musty constituents allowed him to recommend the proposed ban on Black immigration to Canada as soon as May of 1911. The purpose of this proposal was to prevent Black people from entering Canada. They wanted to create an all-white nation. They did not want more Black people. Hell, they didn't even want the Black people that they had at this time. They framed it as if they were doing this for the benefit of Black people. Lies! There you go! In order to maintain Canada's pure and innocent image. Canada is framed as this safe haven who is always looking out for everyone and is never responsible for causing harm. And yet that couldn't be further from the truth. Bruce Shepard calls this Canada's campaign of diplomatic racism. Canada is just America Jr., two sides of the same coin. The government and their supporters wanted the law to ban Black people from entering for a year with the option to extend it for however long they wanted, whenever they wanted. The legislation reads... For a period of one year from and after the date hereof the landing in Canada shall be, and the same is prohibited of any immigrants belonging to the Negro race which is deemed unsuitable to the climate and requirements of Canada. Order and Council PC 1911-1324, also known as the Proposed Ban on Black Immigration, was approved on August 12, 1911. So it was approved and it was on its way to becoming law, but the government was really afraid of messing up their working relationship with America and they didn't want to ban black people from entering Canada because America knew that black people from America were fleeing to Canada. So they did not officially invoke the order or include it in the Immigration Act. They wanted to do that, but they also wanted to maintain their good image. On October 5th, 1911, the cabinet completely repealed the order, stating that Frank had not been present when it was considered and approved. Why you always lying? This was a straight up lie, because Frank was the first to support it and recommend passing it into becoming Canadian law. It's also very strange for them to choose to protect him and his image in this situation. Even though the law was never passed, it was made clear that Black people were not welcomed or wanted. When comparing the immigration policies that were put onto Black people during this time frame to non-Black people like Ukrainian or German people, for example, the racism and discrimination is even more clear. Between 1891 and 1914, 170,000 Ukrainian immigrants were welcomed into Canada. By 1911, 152,000 German immigrants lived in Canada. And yet, a couple thousand Black people made the journey over during this same time frame. They were not having it. They were not with it. That was a couple thousand too many black people. Canada had such a small black population and yet they did absolutely everything that they could to destroy the population and try to make sure that no others could enter or would want to enter. The government also realized that they had more covert tools and methods of manipulation to halt black immigration rather than this law that we just talked about. So they didn't really need to pass it after all. 
Have you heard that I have a Patreon where you get early and exclusive access to all of my content as well as other exclusive benefits? Those subscriptions start as low as $5 a month, so consider becoming a Patreon member to support me, the podcast, the work that is done over here, but more importantly, just get exclusive access to stuff that others don't. All links can be found down below. One of their main methods from dissuading Black people from coming to Canada was hiring Black people as agents. These agents would travel to southern states to basically talk Black folks out of wanting to come to Canada, paying Black people to be race traders and spies. I'm sorry, what? I'm sorry, what? I'm sorry, what? I'm sorry, what? That's really Canada's legacy. G.W. Miller was a Black doctor from Chicago and one of the most successful agents for Canada during this time period. They initially hired him to report on Black settlements in Western Canada as they wanted to crush them before they got any bigger. Because he did so well with this little trial run of his, they ended up giving him a much bigger task. In summer of 1911, G.W. went down to Oklahoma and was to report back daily to the Canadian government. In these reports, he would describe the Black folks that he talked to, record their names, their occupations, the size of their families, the amount of land that they owned, and the amount of livestock that they had. He would record the specific topics that they discussed. Each report would end with whether he thought that he was successful in convincing the families to not go to Canada. While touring the southern states, he would tell hopeful Black folks searching for a safe new life that he himself had gone to Canada in order to practice medicine, but found that the land and the climate was completely inhabitable. That crossing the border was a difficult, dehumanizing, and nearly impossible experience. Now this wasn't a lie, but the Canadian government thought that it was, so that's tea. That in Canada, they would encounter the same racist and prejudicial treatment that they did in America. Now, this also was not a lie, but the fact that the government told two truths that they thought were lies amongst a bunch of other lies is wild to me. It's also tea because they thought that this was a lie, but in reality, the fact that they were even sending GW down there to do this proved that this was true. He told them that the cold weather would negatively affect their health and make it difficult to survive overall. He would tell them that the black folks he had met in Canada encouraged him to live in Oklahoma instead. Ugh, disgusted. Now this is especially messed up because this means that the Canadian government was intentionally sending black people or trying to get black people to stay in a place where they were going to be murdered. They were doing this in the very year that the lynchings of the Nelsons had happened, so everyone was aware what the current state of Oklahoma was. G.W. reported on whether he had received support or backlash from prominent Black leaders and figures. Community leaders supported him across the board. No one really suspected him of being a snitch and a spy. These leaders then adopted his sentiments because they figured if things were worse in Canada, then they might as well just stay put. They had their community's best interest in mind, and G.W. just had money on his mind. These leaders, because they trusted him, they regularly helped him secure venues to give speeches to large groups of people talking about Canada and to publish his speeches in the very same newspapers that the Canadian government had placed their ads about relocating. On a report to the Canadian government on July 17, 1911, GW wrote, The Canadian boom is rapidly dying out as the unfavorable reports relative to Canada seem to have spread over the entire state. Everywhere I go, People say that they have heard of me and the unfavorable report of Canada. Many want me to relocate in their respective towns. Now, this specific statement, it messed me up on a deeper level. 
because GW was going down there, he was lying and he was being deceitful about what he was doing. And yet black folks trusted him and they still wanted to welcome him with open arms into their community so that he would be safe and live the best life possible despite the circumstances. Meanwhile, he had been lying to them the whole time. And it doesn't seem like he once felt bad about it. Disgusting! GW and similar spies were extremely successful. And I personally hope that karma came back for every single one of them. Canadian immigration authorities did whatever they could to stop black immigration. In 1910, American authorities were no longer allowed to issue permits for black folks to live in Canada. It was up to Canadians only. After this decision was made, the authorities began doing whatever they could to limit black people's access to information that would help them properly immigrate. Once they were at the border, they were required to have a certain amount of money, which was quite high for folks coming from a segregated area that had not received freedom long ago. They had to have letters of recommendation outlining that they were in good standing. Again, this was very hard to come across because the letter had to be from white folks who could vouch for them, basically. Black folks were subjected to unnecessarily tough medical exams at the border. The Canadian government gave kickbacks to doctors who would find a reason to turn black people away at the border. In March of 1911, a group led by Henry Sneed showed Canadians that the medical examinations were basically ineffective as his whole group passed. They were big mad about this, and it was because he had brought over such a large group. People noticed, and they were pissed. Border agents would also receive kickbacks if they found a reason for turning black people away at the border. These agents would consistently treat black people unfairly. They would deny them certificates that authenticated a black person's status as a farmer, despite being forced to farm in America for hundreds of years due to enslavement. They would refuse to give black folks the papers that would reduce their train fare in order to make the journey, something that they regularly did for white people quite consistently. If they were able to get into Canada, they would be given terrible plots of land in the middle of nowhere without any assistance, which allowed for a whole new type of warfare against them. The government knew that they would not be able to farm on this land for a while, so they were aware that the black folks would either die of starvation, the winter elements, or they would go back to where they came from and spread the message of how horrible things were and how terribly they were treated. They were playing mind games with people who had already had a hard enough life. By the fall of 1911, their racist tactics worked and black immigration had slowed down a lot or had basically halted altogether. The public opinion and governmental opinions were and are still extremely prejudiced and discriminatory in nature. It just comes across as more subtle and they will go through more extensive lengths to keep that discrimination hidden. These problematic and racist immigration laws being repealed or no longer being in effect in Canada does not change the reality of Black folks trying to come to Canada to this day. Canada needs immigration, relies on immigration to keep the population up and to keep birth rates higher than the death rates, relies on immigration for the sake of the economy, yet they still find ways to be discriminatory, racist, and prejudicial in terms of who can enter or what jobs they can or cannot do if they are allowed to enter. Basically, old habits die hard. A prime example of this is the Temporary Foreign Worker Program, also known as the Migrant Worker Program. This program allows Canadian employers to hire foreign workers to fill temporary jobs when quote-unquote qualified Canadians are not available. 
This statement in itself is sus as heck. There is not a shortage of workers. There's simply a shortage of workers who the companies can exploit at a low cost to keep their profits as high as possible. This program is supposedly regulated through the Immigration and Refugee Protections Act and the Immigration and Refugee Protection Regulations. It's administered in partnership with Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship of Canada and Canada Border Service Agencies. So, all of the agencies or groups which have historically discriminated against all minorities, but specifically Black people. Alrighty then. Those who come to Canada through this program are granted a new lower tier of immigration status. The Canadian government does not want these people staying in the country. It does not want them to have the option or the prospect of staying in the country. They just want to use them up and ship them back. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? The number of migrant workers granted these permits goes up every single year. A lot of these workers came from Jamaica or other Caribbean islands. Their immigration status is completely dependent on the corporation which brought them over and basically owns them while they're here. Canada's auditor, General Karen Hogan, said herself that the Canadian government doesn't do enough to ensure workers are being protected once they are here. It's very rare for inspections or check-ins to go on. Syed Hussan, who is the executive director of Migrant Workers Alliance for Change, said in an interview with CBC that tying workers to employees is actually throwing open the doors of exploitation. He says without permanent resident status in Canada, a status that gives people rights under Canadian law that must be followed, workers will continue to be exploited in the system of temporariness. He said that what we have is a revolving door system where people are coming into the country and they're either becoming undocumented or they are being deported, they're being kicked out. He said that this has to be fixed, otherwise the country will continue to have a continuous pool of exploitable people who are being brought in, chewed like gum, and spit out when the country's done with them. People who are part of this program are consistently underpaid and overworked. Their employees go unchecked, unmonitored, and basically unpunished, allowing them to do whatever they want, whenever they want. This program makes way for legal exploitation endorsed by the Canadian government. When coming to Canada, these workers are not always informed of their rights, but when they do know their rights and they speak up for themselves or they inform others of their rights, they put their livelihood at risk. Their employees can easily send them back to their country of origin and bring someone else in who will take the abuse on the chin without any complaints. Carla Qualtro, the Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion, said that her department has heard from employers that Canadians do not want to do these jobs in a lot of cases. She said that these are hard jobs. This is literally what Canadians, white Canadians said with enslavement and with the construction of the railway. She said, I think the reality is, you know, Canada was built on immigration and we're going to have immigration as a supply of labor. Canada was not built on immigration. Canada was built on colonization, land theft, the theft of people, displacement, cultural destruction, pollution, enslavement, genocide, and in general, just violence. It's also very telling that this minister describes immigration as a supply of labor, rather than describing it as bringing people to the country and allowing them to be a part of the country. Folks who come to Canada through this program, they are not seen as people, but they are seen as sources of labor, which is oddly too familiar. 
Another example of discrimination through immigration is degrees, doctorates, and years of post-secondary education from predominantly Black countries being deemed invalid when they do immigrate to Canada. These folks are forced to redo some or all of their education. They are subject to time-consuming and rigorous testing. If their education is recognized, employers can refuse to hire them because they claim to want people with Canadian work experience. Well... Just as I thought. Trash. In 2017, a report was published by the University of Toronto, specifically the Monk School of Global Affairs, which said, Skilled immigrants often do not succeed in getting professional or highly skilled jobs for which they are qualified. As a result, pervasive underutilization of the skills of highly educated immigrants, aka brain waste, is a serious issue in Canadian immigration. According to New Canadian Media, in Ontario alone, there are 13,000 foreign-educated doctors and 6,000 foreign-educated nurses who are not working in their fields. In 2016, almost 850,000 Canadians were unemployed or underemployed, with more than 60% of that number being immigrants who are in that position only because their credentials are not recognized. Cannot! I cannot! Ew! This is something that they claim costs the Canadian economy $17 billion a year. Instead of fixing this problem, they would rather supplement the issue with temporary foreign workers. And this is super ironic because one of the industries that is currently heavily relying on temporary foreign workers is healthcare. And yet, there are thousands and thousands of qualified people who would be willing and able to work in their fields of study if the Canadian government would just allow them. But they are not going to let this happen because they would rather keep large corporations and themselves happy with keeping labor costs down and profits up. All of this has only continued to go on because racism and discrimination is so deeply entrenched within Canadian culture, laws, and ideals. It's just as real as the sun rising every single day, and that's just undeniable at this point. So we have now come to the part of the episode where I just share my thoughts, my opinions, everything that I've got going on in my head. We briefly covered the Black Ban on Immigration before when I talked about Amber Valley. That is currently only a audio podcast episode and I'll leave that link in the description if you're interested. I will be turning it into a video podcast episode very soon. Every week when I switch between true crime and Black Canadian history, I am really unsure if I'm covering Black Canadian history or if I'm covering true crime. Because the things that the Canadian government does and continues to do, they seem criminal to me. Like it doesn't, it's not just like, oh, this is what happened in history. It's like, this is what happened in history. And this is how it's influencing current culture and current laws and current things that the government is still doing. And the attitudes that Canadians still have. It's not just like, oh, this is something in the past. I think the thing that gets me the most about this one specifically is the way that the Canadian government would utilize the trust that Black communities held for one another, manipulate it, and abuse it through the use of spies like G.W. Miller. And the fact that G.W. Miller was more than willing to go along with it for some pay, that's nasty. That's nasty. Oh, you nasty. And I really do hope that karma came back for him because, like I mentioned before, it's especially disgusting to have these people trust you bring you into their community, tell you that they would make a place for you in their community where they're unsafe, where they're facing harm, and you get to go back home to live your comfortable life with your government money. Oh! Ew! Ew! Like, disgusting. 
There are a lot of issues with the temporary foreign workers program that I do want to dive further into, but I want to do that when talking about the deaths of black people who have come to Canada through this program. If I'm being honest, all of the black history always sounds like true crime. If you enjoyed this episode of Girl You Haven't Heard, then consider tuning into this Black Canadian History playlist if you're watching on YouTube. And if you are just listening in, then consider listening to some of the other episodes that I have focused on Black Canadian history. Make sure to subscribe and hit that bell notification button so you are aware of every single time that I upload. And I will see you next week.